incarnation in Jesus Christ, God has actually entered into our life. He's entered into our flesh. He's entered into what it is to be human so that he can touch us. And so that he can do it mercifully. And yes, it's still going to hurt to burn all those impurities out, but it's not going to kill us. It's not going to be the end of us. And so here is God mercifully coming into our world to touch us, to lift up our heads, to lift up our bodies, to lift up our eyes so that we can gaze on him, so that we can behold him and see him and be changed. Jesus, the very hand of God, touched them with comfort, not condemnation. They were held Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I have a question that is ringing in my head and in my heart today, and if today's goes as planned, I'll be able to ask it here before we're through. Uh, but before we do that, we <laughs> he goes, um, he's transfigured before his disciples, they fall down in fear. And, and there's these stories in, in Scripture of God, we often think of God as far off, as somewhere else, Right, and especially of being terrifying, we've all got. We remember the story of Moses being on Mount Sinai, and God covers him with his hand and says, "You can see my." He says backside. There's all kinds of interesting translations there, <coughs> but he says, "You can see the back of me, not my face. If you see my face, you'll die." All that kind of stuff. <coughs> but we're kind of looking back to and remembering. You remember back in the Garden of Eden before sin, and things were good. And there wasn't so much smoke and fire about it, but God used to walk with Adam and Eve, it says, in the cool of the day, right? It's afternoon time. It's porch sitting time, right? It's when you want to go sit on your porch and just watch stuff, watch nothing happen out in the streets. That's what you want to do. And that's when God would come and he would walk around the garden with Adam and with Eve. But the rebellion of sin separates and isolates us from that kind of relationship. It is us taking ourselves out of that place and saying, God, I'm going to choose my own way over that kind of intimacy with you. 
And so as we're divided from God, God only shows up in these sharp kind of staccato um, epiphanies. <laughs> it's like these quick moments when God will actually show up to his people. And they're, they're all the more intense because of that, right? Because they happen in one time, and you can kind of point back to them and look at them. We read one there in Exodus 24, right? Well, I was thinking about this. You know, Indra and I, we dated long distance, which they say never works out. It usually never works out. Um, and I, see, I had kind of begun as a, a pastor of a church, um, and so I had left Kansas City. At the same time that I left Kansas City to come out to California, Indra left to go to New York. She lived in New York, in New York for a school year. Um, and kind of through a series of unfortunate events, um, she was in Hurricane Sandy. And, and my texts were the only texts that God threw, which tells you that this relationship was created in heaven. Uh, <laughs> they were the only ones that got through. And, 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 and I was able to communicate with her. She was able to communicate with me. I don't know why that was the case, but it was. Um, and so we end up dating. That was kind of the fall. We end up dating uh, in January. Um, and she, it was only a couple times that we even saw each other. She came out in January once for a few days. I went out to New York in April for a few days. And then in May, after her time was up in New York, um, she moved back to LA. And so now we're like three hours apart from each other, right? Which is a lot better than 3,000 miles, um, but it's still pretty far. Like I'm not driving, I don't know, what's, what's three hours from here? Fallon? I'm not driving to Fallon. Um, like, <laughs> and so, so we, we would go see, we'd see each other once or twice a month, right? She would come up or I would go down. And every time that we did, every time that we were in the middle of those visits, they were so intense. It was like being with her just consumed everything that I did and everything that I was. I would go from kind of being in ministry and trying to do youth stuff and coaching basketball and trying to be engaged in the community and sitting around in the coffee shop talking to the old guys, just, you know, doing whatever. But then all of a sudden, here she would be, right? This five foot two in heels, Nicaraguan vision would be like standing before me. <laughs> and my life and my attention and my focus would just like shift. Everything was about her, right? Just all consuming. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> and things I see are a lot more these days. Um, most days... She'll greet me when I walk in the door. Uh, <laughs> and yet, our fellowship, our communion, our presence in each other's lives is much more intense. And it's much more real. We've got kids together. We share finances. I walk the dog. She decides where to put pictures on the wall. Like it's, We're like deeply involved in each other's lives. We're in each other's like text, family text chains, right? There is no way of getting us out of each other's lives at this point. And yet it doesn't have the same kind of intensity that it used to have. You see what I'm saying? When she walks in the room, it's not like all of my mind and all of my heart and every all of my being is just absorbed with being around her, which is good because if it did, I would just be a drooling idiot all the time. <laughs> there would be no way for me to function. I ought, like it would it would not it wouldn't be good. It would not it would not be good. And so, so here's, here's part of what is happening in the scriptures. Right? 
In the Old Testament, God still shows up to his people. He does. He shows up in the Garden of Eden. He shows up on Mount Sinai. He comes to the prophets, Isaiah and Ezekiel at different times. But when God shows up, it's like, it's this overwhelming, all-consuming thing. Right? You get even just like a little bit of God's glory, and all of a sudden, everything else stops. You are consumed in that moment. then comes Jesus, right? And Jesus is trying to move his people from this moment of long-distance dating, right, to now I'm with you. Now we're in communion with one another. Now we're in intimate relationship with each other. And so the emotional intensity of the interactions decreases, right? But the actual intimacy and communion increases. So in the Exodus, what Nathan read for us this morning, God was most present. He descends, the cloud descends onto the top of the mountain. And Moses, it says, takes, the the story is crazy. If you want to go read Exodus 24, it's an amazing story. They have to build a fence around this entire mountain, which if you've ever been to a mountain, it's like miles and miles and miles to try to build a fence that's going to keep everybody off because they knew that God is so holy and God is so good that if you got too close, if you cross that fence line, like you're, you're gone, right? And so, so they have to protect each other and they build all of these structures like this. You've got to kind of pass this test in order to move past this barrier and then there's this barrier. So they build the fence and nobody can come up to the fence. But Moses, God tells Moses, okay, you and a couple of elders, you guys can come. So, so here comes Moses and he picks three elders and they climb the mountain. But then up at the top, like where the cloud is, and it says it's like there's a blazing fire inside the cloud, right? It's both light, which reveals, and a cloud, which conceals, right? It shows and it hides at the same time. And those things are like there on the top of the mountain, and they come right up to the edge of it, and all four of them just kind of fall down and worship. And it says they worship for six days, and they're just quiet for six days. And then there's this amazing line in verse 11 where it says, and he, God, did not lay a hand on them. Did not lay a hand on them. Why? Because what are you afraid of? You're afraid that you're not holy enough to be there. And if God does what is God by rights can do, you're dead. You've crossed a line, and if God lays a hand on you, you're not going to make it through that moment, Right? You're unclean. You have not been made right. And so it's a terrifying thing to be at that boundary. But then God says, leave those three there. Moses, you come into the cloud. And so Moses actually goes into the cloud, goes into the glory of God, and is surrounded by that like most intense spirit, presence, glory of God. Maybe a few people in history I, you're just almost speechless <laughs> trying to think about it. But what do we see there? God reveals himself. God comes in his holiness. God calls them up a mountain. God brings a cloud and a light, and he calls Moses into the cloud on the seventh day. He doesn't touch them, and then they look up and they see, it says, they beheld the Lord. 
They look on the Lord. Okay, so what do we find when we get to Matthew? Matthew chapter 17. Jesus has just had this interaction with Peter where he's asking his disciples, who do people say that I am, right? And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist and some say you're this and some say you're that. And then he looks at them and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets words from the Father that like nobody else has been able to confess or say this yet. He says, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. Not just the political Messiah that everybody thought was going to come and throw over, overthrow Rome and do that whole thing. He says, you are the son of the living God. You are more than a man. A man, yes, but also more than a man. And Jesus looks at him and says, okay, Peter, this isn't from you, right? This is bigger than you. And then he has to enlighten them about his own suffering, about his own death. And they struggle to accept that. And then it says, and six days later, remember how long Moses and his three elders waited outside the cloud on top of a mountain. And it says, and six days later, Jesus took James and John and Peter up a high mountain. You have all the same elements. It's six days, so it's been go up a mountain. There's three elders with the one leader. They wait right there on the edge. And what is it that happens? Jesus himself is transfigured before them. His face becomes like the sun shining and his, his clothes become like themselves. They have their own light source. Like there's this light source inside of Jesus that's now shining out. John Wesley said, the indwelling deity darted out its rays through the veil of his flesh, and that with such transcendent splendor that he no longer bore the form of a servant. The deity of Christ pierces through the servant so they don't see the servant anymore. The human is still there, but it's like it's passing through it in a way that overcomes and overwhelms it. And here they are watching their friend, Jesus, who's not only their leader, but he's somebody that they have eaten with, that they've walked with, that they've slept with, that they've tried to find hotel rooms with. Like they've done all of this stuff and all of a sudden he's like changed. He's a different person. He's a different thing right in front of their eyes. There's almost no more veil. He is revelation itself. You see, Jesus here is not mediating God's presence. He's not standing in between saying, well, here's God's presence over here and here's you. So I'm going to be the in-between the way that Moses was the in-between saying, I'm going to go up to God and then I'll bring down what God gives me and I'll give it to you. No, Jesus is standing in the middle, but he is God's presence. He's mediating between us and the Father, but he is the Father's presence among us. If we want to know God, we look to Christ. Do you see how that works? He is Moses inside the cloud, but he's also more than Moses could ever be. He's the revealer and the revelation. And just so we don't get this twisted, Moses and Elijah show up speaking with Jesus, talking with him, trading words with the word, right? Having a conversation with Christ. It's the law 
The Torah, the first five books of the Bible, represented by Moses. It's the prophets, which are basically the rest of the Old Testament, represented by their primary exemplar, Elijah. And here's the thing. It's not a dating relationship anymore. It's not long distance. Christ is there with them, among them. The revelation of God is here among us, walking among us, walking in the cool of the day, sharing a campfire, sharing a meal. Those three disciples know what his voice sounds like. They can see his face. They know where his eyes wrinkle when he laughs. They know what he smells like when he's been on the road too long. They know how annoyingly present he is to them. It's almost like marriage. And, and just like marriage, Peter puts his foot in his mouth. <laughs> just like marriage, Peter talks when he shouldn't, right? <laughs> he says, well, okay, this is great. Let me build a couple tents. I'll build one for you. I'll build one for you. I'll build one for you. It'll be great. If I build shelters, you guys will stay a while. And we can kind of just sit on the porch and hang out and talk about everything we're supposed to talk about. And I love it. It says, while he was still speaking, it's like, it's like God just goes, shh, 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 shh. like, Peter, Peter, stop, stop. <laughs> I know you're well-intentioned. I know what you're trying to say, but it's a little Peter-ish. Like, stop. <laughs> it's too soon. Just be quiet. Just be here. Just soak this up with me. And a cloud comes down covers Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And it says it's a bright cloud, which I love. It's like a cloud, but there's like light inside of the cloud. They are inside the glory of God at the top of the mountain on the seventh day. The day of rest, the day of presence, the day of peace, the day of wholeness. And the voice speaks. The voice speaks just like at his baptism, at the beginning of his ministry. And it says, this is my beloved son. But then it finishes up. Listen to him. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. When he speaks, let those words penetrate your thick skull, Peter. Let those words get into your heart. Let them change you. All right, we're going to come to my question here in a minute. <laughs> when the disciples hear that voice, what do they do? They're good Jews. They know you're not supposed to see God. So they fall down. They fall down. Woe is me. Like, I'm terrified because I don't want to die out of holiness. I don't want to be exploded with holiness. I don't want to have my very being unmade with the goodness of God because I know, like Isaiah says, that I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And if I come here to God's presence, I am in trouble. I'm in trouble. I know a guy that had got a tattoo in CYA. He got it right on his forehead, which was not a good move. Um, California Youth Authority. <laughs> and, and they... You know, they just, they made the tattoo with like, like pen ink or whatever. It was just, they just broke open a pen and then they 
guitar string or whatever. And so they like tattoo this thing on his forehead. And he was in, he was in a program I was working in. And so they had a tattoo removal program, which is great, <laughs> which is great. You don't want to have tattoos on your forehead, okay? Pro tip. Um, <laughs> but when he went to go get it removed, like there were so many impurities in the thing. Like there were so many just like little pieces of junk and dirt and even like metal and stuff that were like in the ink that the way they do is they have to like shoot a laser at the ink and it explodes it and then it slowly dissolves. Your body gets rid of it, but that's how they do tattoo removal with lasers. The problem is, is they're heating up all these impurities <laughs> in his forehead. And so it's like insanely painful, insanely painful. And I think it took seven or 10 treatments and he, he finished like two or three and he couldn't handle it. And it's just like, it's like, it's like heartbreaking because you want it, he wants it gone. I want to see, everybody wants to see it gone, but it's such a process to get there. And that's holiness. That's holiness. It's like God's goodness is the laser, right? <laughs> But sometimes to have that like undo us and to undo all the impurity and all the brokenness in our lives is insanely painful. And it's not because God is evil. It's not because God is bad. It's because when goodness comes into conflict with evil, it causes friction. And that friction has a way of burning. And so when we experience the heat of God's love, sometimes it's a terrifying thing. And the disciples fall down. They fall down going, we do not want to die. And here, you've got to remember this. Remember, God on Sinai did not lay a hand on those four men. But what is it that Jesus does? Jesus came and touched them. And said, rise, have no fear. And it says they lifted up their eyes. I know that seems like a small thing, but this is the way the scriptures work. Where before God was far off and before God's holiness was an unquenchable laser fire that would burn us. And so in his mercy, he did not come close to us. But you see, in the incarnation, in Jesus Christ, God has actually entered into our life. He's entered into our flesh. He's entered into what it is to be human so that he can touch us and so that he can do it mercifully. And yes, it's still going to hurt to burn all those impurities out, but it's not going to kill us. It's not going to be the end of us. And so here is God mercifully coming into our world to touch us, to lift up our heads, to lift up our bodies, to lift up our eyes so that we can gaze on him, so that we can behold him and see him and be changed. Jesus, the very hand of God, touched them with comfort, not condemnation. They were held and received in God's mercy. Not only that, but in that touch, he's showing the disciples that the one who is declared to be the beloved son of God is in fact flesh and blood. God does not give us a gospel that is far off, that is off in the distance. It's a story from history. That's mythology that never really happened. The gospel is flesh and blood in Jesus of Nazareth. And the cross the breaking of that fresh flesh and blood is God revealing his love in a strange way. 
the transfiguration, this changing of God and of Jesus into, into his risen form, honestly, is a little taste, it's a little treat of what post-resurrection life is going to be like. And so the disciples, part of what Jesus is saying to them is, don't be afraid of the cross, don't be afraid of the suffering, because as I go through that suffering, I am now able to be a part of this kind of life in the resurrection. You see? It's like, don't fear the process that it's going to take because it's going to be horrible. The cross is ugly and brutal and terrible. But the cross is necessary to bring about this redemption. What Jesus is saying is, look, I'm going to get this tattoo removed for you. That I'm going to bear the cross. And I'm going to bear the fire of God's love. And I'm going to bear the brokenness and the heat that it's going to take to work out these impurities so that you too can come to share in this resurrection life. I'm going to be the one who holds that in myself so that you can come and know this mercy. All right, so my question. My question is how, and I've been thinking about this day for a while, what enables somebody to serve as a church treasurer for 40 years? What, what gives the grace, the ability, the patience to do that job? for four decades. I have not even breathed for 40 years, okay? When I was born, Jack had been doing this for eight years. <laughs> and we know that he's been much more than a treasure. He's the one who's looked into the belly of the beast of what it takes to keep a church going. He's the one who's produced reports that people haven't wanted to read. He's the one who keeps the kitchen stocks, cups, and plates, and forks. The one who has cared for the grounds, who shepherded the vision for, I don't know, five, six, seven different pastors. You do so much in that role. It's kind of like being crucified. <laughs> Slowly, <laughs> over time. <laughs> but I'm sure there were days when it felt that way. And on top of that, if you're here very long, you'll see him bringing in toilet paper, changing light bulbs. I mean, it's like there's not really anything here on these three acres that Jack and Barb have not touched, that they've not influenced, that they have not in themselves been a part of. Barb, in her time as secretary, as a volunteer, as a teacher, as a board member, it's hard to wrap your head around. And, and my question is, like, how does that kind of faithfulness show up? Like, what is it that produces that kind of faithfulness? Because I'm sure there are hundreds of opportunities to jump ship along the way. I'm sure there's all kinds of times to say, well, why don't I just let somebody else do it? I can't take it anymore. There's all kinds of opportunities to try to say, well, I'll serve God over here in this way or that way. 
but I don't want to do it in the hard, nitty-gritty stuff. And that's what the world wants to tell us. It's not your responsibility. Let somebody else deal with it, right? Let somebody else handle that. You don't have to show up at 7 o'clock on Wednesday morning to pray, <laughs> but Jack does. Certainly don't get up there and play the bongos like you're enjoying it, you know? It's like, man, let people know how much it hurts. <laughs> get some sympathy while you're at it, right? <laughs> and there are there's so many temptations there, and I, I really, it's not my... I'm not trying to just make an example of Jack and Barb. There's others here who have similar levels of faithfulness. But I know and I appreciate what you all have done for me, for others in this church. And I know ultimately you've done it for Christ and for his church. But what is it that makes that possible? The only thing that I can imagine that makes that possible is that the Son of the living God is made flesh and blood. And he touches us and he says, do not be afraid. He helps us to lift up our eyes and to see the cross and to know that what appears to be so terrible will bring about a resurrection body, a resurrection life. The life of service and of love that we're called to in Jesus Christ is not one where he abandons us. It's not one where he leaves us, but it's one where he walks beside us, sometimes in the cool of the day, sometimes in the heat of the day. As we do difficult things with great love. And so thank you, Jack and Barb, for modeling that. Thank you for your servant's heart. But we know that your faithfulness only points us to Christ's faithfulness. It's out the fact that the real love of Christ is love with skin on. It's resurrection in our everyday lives. And so I hope that this morning you'll hear and commit yourself to some outsized act of love today. An act of love that's only possible by the truth of Christ's resurrection and the everyday reality of his cross his empty tomb at work in us. We come to that reality in the table. As we come to see, to know that Christ has indeed been broken on our behalf. So I want to invite you to come and to worship by receiving the bread and the cup today.